What's up, everybody? You guys doing good? Good to be with you. And I uh, want to say hello to everyone joining us across all of our other locations and anybody tuning in online. And before we get going today, I just want to uh, celebrate something that took place this last week. If you were here last Sunday, then you might recall that we honored a very, very special group of people in our community, our school teachers, as they get ready to head back into the classroom. So we had them stand and we prayed over them. And then we just said, if you need help uh, clearing your list of school supplies for your classrooms before the school year starts to Texas number in, we'll give you till Monday at midnight and uh, we'll send you a $75 um, electronic gift card on Tuesday. And uh, it was really, really cool just to kind of see what happened over the course of those uh, couple of days, like the snowball effect that began to kind of transpire is that a number of you kind of saw what we were doing and then you sort of took it upon yourself to go, well, I'm gonna do this too. And so many of you were like reaching out to teachers and you were uh, helping them. And so the snowball effect of generosity was beginning to, to take place. And um, the, the, there's so many cool stories. Like uh, many of you that are serving like in a, a school system, like you said that teachers that don't go to our church were coming up to you saying, why would your church do this? And it was creating this like opportunity for, for really, really cool conversations. Well, anyway, I want to share with you uh, some numbers that uh, came in. Uh, Monday evening at midnight, we had uh, 1,587 text messages that came in. All right, really cool. Um, for a total of a uh, little over $119,000 in gift cards that went out. Uh, and really cool number, 578 schools were represented in all of that. Uh, multiple states. And uh, I, I like so much fun. Like normally, you know, I kind of stay off like the comments section on social media because, you know, like I like to be encouraged. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, but this was like totally different. Like I was reading down through the comments. Most of the comments were like tags. Many of you were like tagging teachers, family, friends that you know, like, hey, you should text in, you should get this. And I was watching, like some people would comment and they, they just thought it was like too good to be true. And somebody goes, well, I'm pretty sure this is just for members of Trader's Point. And I was like, I never said that. So I like, I popped on, I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> and somebody was like, well, you know, I live in Texas and I think this is just for residents of the state of Indiana. And I was like, I never said that. I was like, no, it's not. You know, and, and so it was just this cool real snowball effect. And so, man, I just want to thank you guys for your generosity. Like, it's so, like, your ongoing generosity throughout the year. Like, if you think $119,000 is a big number, that's because it is, right? Like, like, that's a big number. And yet your ongoing generosity makes it possible for me to live out my dreams of being Oprah, right? It's like, you get a car and you get a car. But in all seriousness, like, I love the fact, like, there's pros and cons. Like, I've served in really, really small churches, and I've gotten to serve in um, bigger churches like ours. And uh, I really don't care about the size of our church. I love the impact we can make. And so there are roughly uh, 30,000 or so people that call Traders Point home. Not all of you show up on the same weekend. Uh, if you did, I'd probably have a heart attack. But uh, about 30,000 of you call Traders Point home. You break that down, $119,000, that breaks down to like four or five bucks a person. That's doable, right? So our generosity, when we come together, it enables us to make a big, big impact upon our city and upon our community. So thank you guys for that. I really appreciate it. Well, if uh, you have a Bible, go ahead and find Daniel chapter three. That's where we're going to be today. And if you're just now joining us, we are three weeks into an eight-week series called Among 
Lions. And what we're doing is we're just going like verse by verse studying the life of a guy by the name of Daniel, whose whole story is documented in the Old Testament book that, uh, you know, covers his name. And uh, just by way of recap, uh, what we saw in Daniel chapter 1 is that you've got this really corrupt king by the name of Jehoiakim, who oversees the nation of Israel, God's people. And then you've got this really corrupt king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who oversees the empire of Babylon. And God continued to warn Jehoiakim and the Israelites of their unfaithfulness. And finally, uh, he allows Nebuchadnezzar, he permits him, that's the word, to besiege Israel. It's all part of God's plan. And besiege was different than obliterate. They didn't go in and wipe them off the face of the earth. They went in and took the best of the best of people, finances, culture, and then absorbed it into the Babylonian empire because that's how they became stronger and more dominant. And so part of uh, who got brought back was this guy named Daniel and three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or depending upon your church background, Rakshak and Benny, right? And so uh, they bring them back to Babylon and they, are, they get a full ride scholarship to the University of Babylon where they get an undergrad degree in paganism and debauchery. They have their names changed to reflect the names of false Babylonian gods. They're put under pressure to change their diet and they're put into the chief eunuch, which likely meant a surgery that was designed to remove anything distinctive about their gender. And instead of Daniel and his friends, you know, sort of like rising up and becoming very, very angry followers of God, and instead of then sort of like, well, you know, I guess we, you know, we can't beat them. Let's just join them. You know, let's just kind of assimilate. They, they, they don't do that either. What we see over and over again throughout the book of Daniel up until this point, we're going to continue to see it, is that they live their lives. And here's the description with wisdom and balanced judgment. It was very rare then. It's very rare nowadays to see that. And it was so countercultural that the Babylonian authorities couldn't help but notice and they respected Daniel and his friends, even though they didn't believe what they believed. And it earned them seats at the table where they could have tremendous impact upon the culture in which they lived because Daniel and his friends knew that they were in Babylon, but they weren't of it. They knew what 1 John 4, 4 said, the greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They had the spirit of the living God living within them. And so it, they were able to make a difference by being different. Now, what I love about our study in Daniel is that it's not about, you know, God inviting some young man into full-time vocational ministry. There are some that he invites in to do that, uh, but he's using somebody in the marketplace, which is the, the, the vast majority of us, that's how we're gonna be used by God. And that's how we make a bigger difference. And so what God did then is he still desires to do today. The Bible is not an old book that tells us what happened. It is a timeless one that tells us what always happens. And so God is saying, hey, listen, I am looking for men and women who will be modern day Daniels today, that they understand who they are and they understand their identity in Christ and they know what they believe and why they believe it. And so they don't need to rise up and become defiant. And they also don't need to blend in, but they can stand with courageous conviction and live out those convictions in a winsome, real, and authentic way. And I said a moment ago that we have roughly 30,000 people that call Traders Point home. What if we had 30,000 
Daniels living out our faith today. Imagine the kind of impact. Now, uh, because of like the size of our church, we are often known around the city. We might be known for all kinds of things. As I said earlier, I don't want to be known for our size. I want to be known for our impact. And so we had 30,000 Daniels really living this out in real and authentic ways. Imagine what the community might say about us. They may go, well, you know, I will never go to that church. I am not a Christian. I don't believe in God. Everything they stand for, I stand for the exact opposite. However, isn't that the church that cares for vulnerable children and struggling moms? Like, isn't that the church that speaks up for the marginalized and the oppressed? Isn't that the church that gave away nearly $120,000 so teachers could start the school year with fully supplied classrooms? Is that the church that prays over, serves, and honors men and women in law enforcement? Is that the church that every year at Christmas, they help families in need provide great Christmases for their kids to do so with dignity and respect? Like, is that the church that really challenges men to step up and to be the men that God created them to be, not to shame them or to beat them up, but to encourage them to step into their purpose and identity as men of God. And by the way, guys, mark October 28th, a Friday night on your calendar. Don't book anything else. That's our men's night and you don't want to miss it. Ladies, mark that calendar in the man in your life's uh, book, right? Like get him here. And just in case like you think that we've forgotten about you, ladies, women's night is going to be in February. That's going to be amazing as well. It, how about this? Um, for those of you that invite your unchurched family and friends to come with you, I just want to promise you this. I want you to know this is my aim every single week is that when I'm teaching that somebody is here, maybe, maybe you're here right now and you're like, I've had a really bad church experience. Like I'm sort of inching my way back into this thing. Like I don't trust you. You're going to have to earn it. Like I don't know what I believe about God. All that kind of thing. That if somebody leaves right after the service today, they would go, wow, wow. Like I don't know that I believe what they believe, but I believe they believe it. And I believe it's real. And uh, I don't know that I agreed with, uh, you know, there was like all this like clapping and people were raising their hands. That was all kind of weird. And there's this guy up front. I don't know everything that he was saying uh, that I agree with. But man, that was really hopeful because right now I'm desperately looking for hope in this hopeless world. And that was helpful. Like that, that made sense. I understood it. It was logical. I don't know if I agree with it all just yet, but that was really helpful. And I think I could apply that to my life tomorrow. Now, here's what I've learned after about 25 years of ministry. If somebody just keeps coming back because it was hopeful and helpful, eventually they run into Jesus. Eventually, they just have that experience, and that's what we're praying and hoping might happen. And I just got to tell you, man, like I've honestly, I've honestly, I can say this with all integrity, I've never been more excited about the future and the direction of our church than I am right now. And that's saying a lot because uh, we've been on a pretty wild ride over the last 15 years, those of you that have been here that long, uh, and the last two years have been really difficult. Like I couldn't see five feet in front of us. And now that the fog is beginning to sort of lift, and obviously the world is still really, really jacked up, and there's still so much pain, and yet at the same time, this is what we were made for. This is what God designed the church to be. And right now, as we begin to venture into the future, I'm so excited about what he can accomplish in and through. Because right now, more than ever, the world is looking for answers. Everywhere else has come up short. So I just want to say to you, as we come into chapter 3, this is just a little like kind of insight from my study. If I could just kind of go like, if I could just allow the theological nerd to come out of me, because he's in there. 
right? He's in there, right? Just this theological nerd. Uh, here's what I would say. Chapter one was written in Hebrew because it starts in the land of Israel. Chapters two through seven, the original languages, it was written in Aramaic, the language of Babylon, because uh, all the events took place there. But then in chapters eight through 12, it reverts back to Hebrew because that's all the prophecies about the end times. So the question that the book of Daniel presents to those of us today reading it is, hey man, if you know how to follow God in the Hebrew, do you know how to do it in Aramaic? Well, let me say it a little bit better. Um, if you know how to follow God on your home field, that's great. Can you do it when you are the away team? Those of you that are athletes, you know it is infinitely more challenging to go onto uh, as a visitor onto somebody else's home field and to play. Every advantage is thrown against you. They turn the locker room temperature way, way down, right? They stop up the toilets, like all that kind of stuff, just so you don't play very well. They're booing you, all that. And I just want you to know, like if you're a Christ follower, we have the away jerseys on. And he goes, man, you can be faithful to God. Like, you know what it looks like, sounds like, talk like to be a Christian in church on Sunday. Like, if this room isn't easy for you to be a Christian, that I don't know what's going on. Like, you know how to do it in this room. But can you do it out in your community Monday through Saturday? That's the question that the book of Daniel is seeking to answer. Now, in chapter 1, if you recall, Daniel is 14 or 15 years old. Chapter 2, a few years go by, he is uh, 17 or 18 years old. And there are, between chapters 2 and 3, 17 years that go by. So Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are in their mid to late 30s at this point. And where we left off last week was King Nebuchadnezzar was having these crazy psychedelic dreams. And he had this dream about this giant statue made of different metals. So the head of gold, which represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon. And then you had uh, the chest and the torso and the legs made of different metals. The, the feet, if you recall, were made of clay, symbolizing that this impressive statue was impressive to look at, but it was built on a very unstable foundation. And the rock, which represents Jesus, strikes the feet, the whole thing comes down, shatters to pieces, and then the rock becomes a mountain, saying that Jesus would come to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. Right? And then Nebuchadnezzar thanks Daniel for interpreting the dream. He gives him this big giant promotion. Right? All that happens. Now, what is the very next thing Nebuchadnezzar does? Check it out, verse 1 of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. All right, so he is not the brightest bulb in the shelf, okay? And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So you just got to be like, you got to sit back and like scratch your head and be like, really, bro? Like, this is the first thing you're going to do? You had a dream about a giant statue? And Daniel said, this represents your kingdom, and it's all coming down. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll build a giant statue. That's what I'll do. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice the location. It says he built it on the plains of Dura, which is the exact location that the Tower of Babel was built in Genesis chapter 11. I don't think that is any coincidence. All right, the second thing that I want you to see is that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the head was gold. That was it. But he builds a, an entire gold statue. And I think that his line of reasoning is something along the lines of, well, I'm going to defy the dream. I think that really what the problem was wasn't the statue. The problem was that the whole statue wasn't mine. So I'm going to make the whole statue gold representing all my kingdom because that'll be much more stable. 
And if you notice, the statue was not given an identity. And I think that there, there's a reason there, possibly, so that people could interpret it however they wanted. There's a term for that. It's alive and well today. It's called religious pluralism. Religious pluralism says it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it and you don't hurt others. Doesn't matter what you worship as long as you sincerely worship it. And I think that Nebuchadnezzar is saying through the statue, hey, privately worship whoever and whatever you want. That's totally fine. I don't care. But in public, you must keep those personal beliefs private and acknowledge the power of the empire. Sound familiar? And there's a reason. There's no coincidence. Because as we said, the city of the Babylon was a real place, but it got destroyed about 3,000 years ago. The spirit of Babylon lives on. The spirit of Babylon is alive and well behind every nation of men throughout history. So in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar says he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So he invites everybody on his payroll. And this is a ribbon cutting. This is like a dedication service to his statue. And since Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been given promotions, they're on the payroll, they get invited. Now, if you notice, um, or did you notice, who isn't there? Daniel doesn't appear to be there. Now, at the end of chapter 2, he gets this promotion, and he is taken to the king's court. So that's quite possibly where he is. Uh, My theory is that Nebuchadnezzar didn't want him there. I mean, think about it. I mean, this is uh, the voice of accountability in his life. Daniel was the one that interpreted the dream about this statue. And now Nebuchadnezzar is building a statue. He doesn't want the guy who just interpreted or prophesied that your entire kingdom is coming down at the ribbon cutting. So he's not there. And in verse 4, it says, Then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Now catch this last sentence. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So this is not like a matter of preference. This isn't like, hey, if you don't feel like it, this is like, we don't care what you think. You need to bow down and worship. And it went from zero to 60 in 2.5 seconds. And he's like, man, if you don't do this, you're immediately going to be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, what I want you to see, I need to do just like a little bit of review. Those of you that have been in our church for a while, you have heard me say this. And I actually covered all of this last fall when we went through the book of Romans together. So if this sounds familiar, it's because I'm kind of recircling on this. Because it's so important to understand, not only to understand the text, but to understand the times in which we live. What we just read here is the demonic equivalent of a worship service. So there was an image for them to worship, a gold statue. We worship an image too. What we just did a few moments ago was us worshiping an image. We worship Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his nature. And so they said, hey, you need to bow to the counterfeit king And if you don't, you will be thrown into a counterfeit hell, a fiery furnace. Now, what I need you to understand is that God is a creator. Satan is a counterfeiter. Satan does not have an original bone in his body. He doesn't have an original idea. 
he drafts off of God's ideas. And so what happens is, is that anything that we would consider sinful or destructive, really at its root, is a good gift that God gave to us for our joy and fulfillment that we turn into an ultimate thing. The book of Romans says we, start, we choose to worship creation over creator God. We worship the gift as ultimate. So the, the top three, money, sex, and power. Not bad in and of themselves unless we make them ultimate. It becomes a counterfeit desire. So Satan takes all the good gifts that God has given us and he counterfeits them, which is why this is so confusing. For some of us, we're like, well, I just feel like I'm kind of following my natural impulses. And it's like, well, no, that's, a, that's originally a good gift God gave. Satan's counterfeited it. He's twisted it just enough to be somewhat confusing. So understand, here's how I'd like to, to look at it, is that if God gave us Fruit Loops, which like we all know he did, Satan gave us fruit spins, okay? It's the <laughs> counterfeit. It's not good, right? If, if God gave us Pringles, Satan gave us Prongles. <laughs> if God gave us Mountain Dew and Dr. Pepper, Satan gave us Dr. Bob and Mountain Shouting, all right? That's, that's what that is. It's, it's the counterfeit. It's never good. And so whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. And he's still doing it today. And in our culture here in the modern Western world, likely you will never be called to bow down to a literal golden idol. But you will be called to bow to an ideology. Ideologies are the idols of our day. And so there are idols within our culture, and you could probably rattle them off. You've seen them in school. You've seen them in the marketplace. You've seen them around our community, where if you will not bow down, like, if you will not affirm everything about this ideology, then, hey, we're not going to throw you into a literal furnace, but we will fire you, cancel you, boycott you, and remove your books from Amazon. Bow to the counterfeit or else. That has always been Satan's strategy because it is what is behind the spirit of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar had just heard the interpretation of the dream. Oh, he knows. He knows that Jesus is the rock that is coming to strike the foundation. And so he says, you know what? I think I can outrun the prophecy. I think I can keep this from happening. And so in the following verses, he says, you need to bow. And so everyone there that day just eats pavement. Like they just completely bow down, like every race, nation, and language. It sounds real tolerant and inclusive, but it's not. Because the text says very clearly that their motivation for worshiping was not out of a a complete heart or authenticity or even love. It was out of fear. They bowed down that day because they were fearful for their lives. And in verse 8, it says, But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. Now remember the astrologers. These are the guys that could not interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. So I would imagine that they are still a little bit, you know, offended by that. And they're standing there. Just get, it in, get this image in your mind. Everybody's bowing down except for three dudes in the back. And they're standing there and they are not bowing down. Maybe they've got their arms crossed. Maybe they're just standing arms to the side. They're just kind of looking around. And the astrologers see it. And so they snitch on them. And they pull out the fine print. They pull out the bylaws. And they read them to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 11. Hey, uh, the decree states that those who refuse to obey must be this is not a possibility, Nebuchadnezzar. They must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. 
They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They're mocking you. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar, as we see both this week and next week in chapter 4, there's just this tug of war going on for this guy's heart. And he's just only got, he's got one of two gears, man. Like he's either off or he's full on. And Nebuchadnezzar just freaks out and loses it once again. And he says in verse 14, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then this next sentence is key. And then what God will be able to rescue? Then what God will be able to save you from my power? And can I just say to you that that is the question that is in front of every single one of us today. And it's simply this, is God able to rescue me? And whether you realize it or not, that question is on your lips and on your heart and in the back of your mind with whatever circumstance you're facing right now. And it could be a work thing, a marriage thing, a relationship thing, a health thing, a financial thing. We're all saying, is God able, like I would be fully devoted to him if I knew he was able to rescue me from the fiery trials that I'm experiencing. And Nebuchadnezzar throws out that question. And right now you got a showdown. They're going to play chicken. Like these guys are in the back. Everybody's bound down in between. And Nebuchadnezzar points his finger on their chest and says, you better bow right now. And what these three guys do next is a pivotal moment, not only in their lives and in their relationship with God, but in what is going to happen throughout the rest of of the Babylonian empire. And just stop for a minute before we see their response. Just imagine what, how they could have responded. There's really only three ways. And there's often like three ways that we as Christ followers can respond whenever our backs are against the wall as well. One of them is that they could have just gone all confrontational. I mean, that is an option. And we see a lot of that nowadays. We were just sort of like, you know, bulk up, you know, just like, hey, come at me, bro. It's like, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, like you don't tell us what to do. You think the fires of the furnace are hot. Wait till you feel the fires of hell. Because that's where you're going, man. Like they could have just risen up. Like you're not going to tell me what to do. You know, like you're not our king. Forget you. Right? Here's the, another way they could have responded. We see lots of this nowadays. They could have become real compliant. This idea, hey, we're not going to isolate, get all confrontational. We're just going to assimilate. And we're just going to kind of water things down. Oh, hey, we misunderstood. Like, we, oh, you meant that statue? Oh, we didn't even see it. It's like, oh, we were so sorry. Like, you know, you said bow down. Oh, we thought you said stand up. Like, a, and it's like, okay, you know, so my bad, my bad. You know, we could have just gone over. And, and really, this is a reminder that there are three groups of people in this text. There are the people of God. Very clear who they are. Then you get the people of Babylon. Very clear who they are. The next group is really confusing the people of God who live Babylonian. And that's really confusing. And we see a lot of that nowadays as well. These, these are men and women who like maybe grew up in church, raised in church, love, love, love God. Like, I, like I'm a Christian. I give my life to him, but I really don't like what God says about money, sex, and power. So I'm going to kind of shift it. I'm just going to change it up a little bit. Like, man, I, I love God, but man, I really am not down with that whole generosity thing. Like, like I, I don't trust that God can provide for me. So it's like, I'm just going to, you know, God, this is, this is mine. That's yours. I'm going to compartmentalize. 
It's like, man, I, I, I love Jesus. Don't, don't question my love for Jesus, but I am going to live with my girlfriend and sleep with her because that's what I want to do. It's the people of God who live Babylonian. Or there's a third way. And this is the way of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is they were courageous because that's what it's going to require. Courageous in their convictions. They didn't become confrontational and they didn't comply. They demonstrated courage. And their faith, and this, what they say next is quite possibly my favorite section in the book of Daniel. They say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Translation, bless your little heart. All right, that's, <laughs> you know, somebody says, Bless your heart, that is not a compliment. They did not compliment you. Right, they go, oh, bless your little heart, Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve, say it with me out loud, is able to save. Man, is able to save. Man, we need way more of that nowadays. Like, in fact, uh, you need to say that until you believe it. Right? You just, you say it until you feel it and believe it. Like, man, your back's against the wall, face against this impossible circumstance. My God is able to save. My God is able to save. And he will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But check this out, verse 18. This is a game changer. But even if he doesn't, what? <laughs> even if he doesn't, like, why wouldn't he? Even if he doesn't, we want to make it very clear to you. Now, this is where you need to imagine that it is Harrison Ford or Denzel Washington saying this. Because this is, this would be like that, like just that moment, right? Where it's like, wow, like that takes some serious courage. Even if he doesn't, we want to make it so clear to you, Mr. President, we don't dance. All right. That's a throwback to the 90s. Your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set. I love how Pastor Chris Hodges says it. He says, convictions are all about the choices we make before we're challenged. You determine your convictions ahead of time. Before you're in the furnace. Before your back's against the wall. Like, these are my convictions. And so this is what I, I know before I'm challenged. Faith is our ability to act on those convictions when tested. And right now, this is a showdown. And as soon as they said that back to Nebuchadnezzar, I would imagine silence fell over the crowd. Now keep in mind, these are relatively young men. You've got to ask yourself, where did they learn this? Like, where did they learn this courageous conviction? I'm going to get to that here in just a minute. But right in this moment, they could have easily responded another way. They, they could have, and I've certainly responded this way, whenever I've been faced with my own challenge, like when my uh, character is challenged, my beliefs are challenged, when I'm pressured into something, I've responded this way. It's like you, they could have thrown their hands up and been like, God, are you serious? Like, are you kidding us right now? Like, this is the way you're going to repay our faithfulness to you? Like, we were ripped away from our home as kids, and we had to go to this, like, training program, and we got our names changed, and all these things have happened to us, and God, we have been faithful to you throughout the years, and now this is how it's going to end? I'm going to get thrown into a furnace? God, like, are you messing with me? Like, I wish you would have just had me killed back in Israel all those years ago if you were just going to string me along. And I'm just wondering if there's somebody listening to this today, and that's right where you are right now. 
in your relationship with God, you're like, things have fallen apart. Things, I just, I can't find that hope and that help that you're talking about. And maybe somewhere along the line, you either heard or you assumed that the deal God was offering you is like, hey, if you believe in me, if you love me, if you worship me, if you come to church, if you do some good stuff, then here's what I'll do for you. It's kind of like you're sitting across the table with God and you're like in this like uh, negotiations and you, like, you write something down on the napkin and you turn it over and you slide it over to God and say, so he's going to write down and he's going to slide it back over to you. And so you always just kind of assume that, well, like, you know, God, I'll give this to you if you come through for me. And what God wants from us is not, uh, have you ever done those like bargaining prayers? You ever bargained with God? Does it ever work? It's like his finals week, you didn't study, you wake up that morning, you're like, oh, please, Lord Jesus, would you just help me to pass this test miraculously? Just give me the answers. And God, if you do, like I will serve every single weekend in the nursing home for the rest of my life. You know, it's like, it's like you're not going to do any of that. Like once, once you get through that, you forgot like those bargaining prayers. And here Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're saying, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, like we, we believe that God is able to save even if he doesn't, we'll still serve him. And that is a game changer. And some of you might be pushing back. You might be arguing with me in your mind. That's totally fine to do so. You might be saying, well, wh why would God ask that of me? Like, like, why would God ask me to stay faithful to him if he's not going to get me out of the furnace? Why does he just want me to want him for him? And I would just simply say, great question. Why do you want that of every relationship you've had? You ever had somebody uh, text you or call you and you see their caller ID on your phone and you don't want to answer? Come on, you can be honest. You like see it and you're like, oh gosh. Like, <laughs> uh, Chances are it's because the only time they ever contact you is when they want something and you know it. And it's not that you don't want to do good things for them, but it's just if that's what your relationship is boiled down to, where it's the only time you hear from them is when they want something from you. Hey, how's it going? So anyway, you know, you, the relationship is eventually going to fall apart and it is no different between you and God. God doesn't want robots. God doesn't want religious people. God wants a relationship with real people. And he said, and yeah, he is happy to save. He's happy to rescue. But he wants a relationship over that. Now, now here, here's the thing. I don't know if any of you are like me, but I have a tendency to struggle. And, and I'm not talking about like a long, like one of those preacher illustrations. I struggled a long time ago, but I have overcome. All right, so do as I do. All right, I'm talking yesterday, okay? I don't know if any of you are like me, where it's like I have a tendency to mix up my personal agenda with God's promises. And so then when God doesn't come through on my agenda, which sounds pretty good to me, it's my agenda. Then I'm like, well, God, why did you break your promises? And God's like, well, I never promised that. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he sees all of this uh, with these three guys, and he just goes ballistic. Like we are talking Jack Nicholson in the shining kind of crazy. Like coming through the door with a knife, like here's Johnny, right? I mean, he's like crazy. And he like heats up the furnace like seven times hotter, it says. Look at this in verse 22. It says, because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the men in. Any of you ever gotten a little bit close to that campfire? And you're like, oh man, that's hot. This is so hot, it actually killed them. 
And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames, of which we could assume, lights out, game over, they're gone. But look what it says next, verse 24. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement, and he exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Well, look, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Now, the text never tells us who this fourth guy is. Um, it could be Jesus. There are some scholars that assume or think that this is maybe the first appearance of Jesus in the Bible. We don't really know that. Um, so, uh, it could be uh, an angel of God that he sent uh, to be with him in the furnace. Uh, regardless, what it is, is a physical demonstration of God's presence with them in the furnace. And then it says, going on. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. <laughs> oh, you changed your tune now, okay. <laughs> Come out. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. I love that, man. It's just like, just imagine, like, you know, it's like their, their trench coats kind of go behind them, like, you know, here we are. That would be so cool. Verse 27. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell like smoke. And here we go again. Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Two gears. Two gears, right? All or nothing. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted him. They defied the king's command, which was him, and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn from limb to limb. It's like, okay, I think you're missing the point of this, Neb. Can we just work the crazy out of you? All right, it's just... Their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Well, that's true. Verse 30, then the king prompted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. All right, so, so we can say this guy is the epitome of unstable, okay? And, and God, there's this wrestling match for his heart. And we're going to see that next week in chapter 4. So in the remainder of our time, let me just give you a few takeaways and observations. Here's the first one, is that... The furnace, I'm speaking figuratively, not literally. The furnace is inevitable. You cannot live your life without having a few furnace experiences. Speaking as a self-professed furnace dodger, can I tell you it's futile. That there are going to be plenty of experiences in our life where we're going to feel our backs are against the wall and we feel the heat that we will be in the line of fire. And maybe the furnace experience for you is your ongoing battle with depression or anxiety. Maybe, maybe the furnace for you is a marriage that you really, really are doing everything that you can to make it work, but it's still falling apart. Maybe a furnace for you is you just lost somebody that you really, really loved and you were just drowning in grief. Maybe the furnace for you is just this ongoing health problem, like this chronic pain. And no matter how many times you go to the chiropractor and no matter how many things you throw at that to try to fix it, it just continues to be there. And you've, pray, you've laid awake at night and just asked God to take it away from you. And it doesn't seem as if he's listening. 
The furnace is when you're falsely accused or criticized, when you had every intention of doing the right thing. Whatever your furnace is, it never asks your opinion. It never says, well, are you a good person? Are you trying to live for God? Are you a Christ follower? Oh, you are? Okay, you get a pass. Furnace doesn't care. Furnace doesn't care. And a furnace is coming for everyone, regardless of who or what you worship and what you believe. Now, let me just make a couple of caveats about the furnace. First of all, I want to be really clear about this, is that God never uses the furnace to punish you for your sins. Let me say that again. Because you heard something different, maybe in a different church or growing up, or you misheard something, God never uses the furnace to punish you for your sins. Your sins were punished once and for all through Jesus on a cross. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences that you're now dealing with that maybe feel like a furnace. But God's not punishing you like, well, I'm going to throw you into the furnace so you can pay for your sins. That's, that's not what that is. The second thing is there is a difference between just the everyday normal circumstances of life, living in a broken world that is dominated by the spirit of Babylon and our own foolish decisions and disobedience. So I can't say, I can't leave today and go 75 miles an hour in a 35-mile zone, get pulled over, thrown into jail and go, well, I guess it's just a furnace. No, that's my disobedience, all right? So, so there is a difference. And I just want you to know that the furnace is inevitable. Here's the second thing. The furnace is a revealer. The furnace reveals who I really am and it refines who I'm becoming. The furnace is what will tell you what you really believe. The furnace will tell you what you're really made of and what your character really is. You know, I've shared this with our church family before, but, you know, the first six weeks of the pandemic, I was like operating on adrenaline. You know, I was just like, we're going to do this. And I'm, I'm naturally a very optimistic person. So I was like, you know, we're going to come through this and here's the opportunities and we're going to go and it's going to be great and rallying people. And about at the end of the six weeks, I ran out of gas and just collapsed physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. And God spoke through my wife, which he often does. And I remember very clearly one day her saying to me, hey, Aaron, you need to slow down. You need to stop. God's forcing you to sit in this. And it's not going to be over tomorrow. And he's trying to show you some things about you. And he did. God brought some things out of the surface of my heart in which it's easy to follow him, do all the right things when things are going great. When things aren't going great, um, what is in there? And it brought all those impurities to the surface. I didn't like what I saw. And I'll be like, God, could you deal with that? Could you refine me? And he will. So if we seek to get out of the furnace too quickly, we're actually missing out on a real gift where God is saying, hey, here's really what, here's what you say you've put your trust in, but this is actually showing you what you really put your trust in. And it's an opportunity to be refined. You know, fire can be really, really damaging, but, but steel workers know that fire can be refining. And actually when the fire cools, that you, be, you, you come out of it looking stronger. Can I share this with you today? I believe that somebody needs to hear this today. I want you to understand this principle, that if you always interpret the furnace that you are going through as God's punishment or his passivity, you will miss out on God's presence. Because God is asking for you to invite him in. What if we changed our prayers from God, get me out, to God, would you please join me in? Here's the third thing. When you're in the furnace, you are never alone. 
you are never alone. It may feel like you are, but you are not. Uh, I was thinking this last week of all the ways that God could have saved. I mean, just think about this. I mean, this is such a great story. I mean, it's amazing. And just think of all the creative ways that God could have saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He could have blinded them with a really bright white strobe light. You know, a flashbang. Boom. And like Nebuchadnezzar stumble around. They can't see anything. Meanwhile, Jesus dressed in all camo. You know, coming in. Like, you know, he comes in through the back furnace. Hey, guys. Psst this way, you know, could have done that. Uh, uh, Gabriel and all of his Navy SEAL angels, you know, they could have ziplined in and got them out with Black Hawk helicopters. You know, they could have done that. Uh, or here's the, to me, this is like the no-brainer. God could have just extinguished the flames of the furnace. You know, they're trying to get it lit. They just can't get it lit. You know, and the matches are wet. But he didn't do that. Instead, what did God choose to do? God chose to save by being with them. It reminds me of one of the very first names that we get for Jesus in the New Testament is that God is Emmanuel. He is with us. This is what sets apart Christianity from every other world religion or belief system. And I know it's popular to say, doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you sincerely believe it. And according to the analogy, if truth is a big elephant and we're all blinded, you know, all the world religions have a piece of the elephant. So somebody's grabbing a hold of the trunk and somebody's grabbing a hold of the tail and they're just describing different things. It's the same elephant. And we just sincerely follow our path. It's all leading to the same place. And I just want to very lovingly disagree with that and say, no, the, there is no other belief. There is no other religion that teaches that their God or entity suffers. That their God or entity steps into the furnace with us. And Jesus took that on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God. He is able to save. There is no other God that saves like this. So let me bring you back to this question. Where did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego learn to be this courageous in their convictions? And I want to say is because they had had years and years and years of training. Now, I'm not talking about the Babylonian training school. I'm talking about discipleship to their God. It is so clear because in these moments where you, you're faced with the furnace, whether you rise up or whether you comply shows how you've been training. And so the book of James says, if you want to grow uh, in spiritual maturity, which is what is required to be courageous in your convictions, then you have to read God's word and then obey it. Read God's word and then do something with it. Apply it. And so this is like, okay, I'm going to read God's word every day. And then God, uh, what is it that you want me to apply from what I just read? And then look for an opportunity to apply it that day. Now, you do that over and over and over and over again, that's like practice for your soul. And so when you find yourself in a situation in which your back is up against the furnace, you just go back, you just revert back to your training and you know how to be courageous in your conviction. So let me illustrate it like this. I've got a golf club up here with me and uh, this is a six iron. I'm not uh, a golfer. I played when I was uh, younger, but I haven't played in quite a while. But from, so all of you golfers out there, please do not judge my swing. All right. And I won't judge your soul. All right. How about that? All right. So <laughs> little pastor humor. All right, so, so just imagine, from what I've been told, there's two parts of a swing, right? So you've got the, um, the back swing, and the back swing is like where the power comes from. But then you've got it right down here, then you've got the follow-through. 
And so from what I've been told, like, you, you can't just be all, like, when you step up to the tee box, you can't be all backswing. Otherwise, the ball's not going to go anywhere. But if you get up and, like, you're all, you step up and you're just all follow through, then there's no power behind that. The ball's not going to go down the fairway. And the same thing is true when we're following God. The same thing is true in our Christian life. Some of us are all backswing Christians. Meaning, like, man, we're like, uh, give me books, give me podcasts. I'm a worship service junkie. Man, if Mav City comes to Indy, you are front and center, all right? It's like all the, back, all the theology, backswing Christians, but there's no follow-through. Like you're not applying any of it to your life. You're not any more loving. You're not any more gracious. You're not serving anywhere. You're not trusting God with your finances. Like there's no follow-through. Now, some of you though, you are all follow-through Christians. And you're, you're, there's not a lot of backswing. You're not spending much time with God in his word because you're all about action. And, and you're all about, well, you know, I know what you believe, but, uh, you know, like, you know, we need to love people. And I need to be really involved in politics and social issues and all that stuff where, like, really, really matters. You know, you're all head, but I'm heart and hands, right? So I'm, I'm a follow-through Christian. But, but, but there's no power behind it. The ball's not going anywhere. What we need is we need Christians who have the backswing. I love God and I love his word. And I'm going to follow through. I'm going to apply what I know. And here's the definition of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is directly connected to the amount of time between hearing God's word and doing it. And when you get up and you begin to do that over and over again, and you begin to practice, 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 what ends up happening is you grow in spiritual maturity, which is what makes it possible for you to be courageous in your convictions when you are in the line of fire. Father, we come to you right now today. And just in the quietness of these few moments before we go on throughout our day, as we get ready for another week, I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us right where we're sitting. And that maybe there's somebody here today who realizes, you know what? I have been a backswing Christian for years and years and years, but there is not enough follow through. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you're like, man, I'm, I'm more of a follow-through Christian. I'm all about the action. I'm all about getting involved outside the walls of the church. But there's not a lot of power in that because there's not a lot of backswing, not a lot of time with God. And God, I pray that you would help us bring those th two things together, to read your word and to do your word and to practice that over and over and over again so that we come to know and believe that you are a God who saves. So Father, pray that you would help us to apply the courage of our convictions to make a difference in this really, really hurting world that is looking for hope and looking for help that only you can provide. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen.